This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, I'm Zach Albetta and you're listening to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm talking this week with Larry Wilson, who is relatively new to the Atlanta scene, but in just two years here has gotten as busy as anyone in a variety of R&B, gospel, and jazz gigs. He is the host of what is quickly becoming one of the most popular weekly jams in town and just released a jazz album entitled Our Thing, a tribute to the music of sax legend Joe Henderson. He also hosts a monthly live stream called Jazz for Lunch on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to help support Working Drummer Podcast, you can do so with a one-time donation on PayPal. You'll see a link for that on our homepage at workingdrummer.net or a recurring donation on Patreon. A donation of as little as $1 a month on Patreon gets you access to exclusive educational content from our former guests, which we are adding to monthly. Tons of really insightful tips, tricks, and lessons in there on everything from your practice routine to snare tuning, and we're adding to it every month. So go to patreon.com slash working drummer, check out the content that's available there, and become a patron to help us cover the expenses of producing this podcast. We also appreciate the feedback we get in the form of ratings and reviews. This helps new listeners find us. We've been sharing some of those reviews recently, and here's another one on iTunes from BB Rosa that accompanied a five-star rating. Solid interviews with knowledgeable players. A good podcast is based on passion, knowledge, an interesting Rolodex, and an ability to get people to talk. The crew at Working Drummer brings this to the table. There are hundreds of skilled drummers out there. Working Drummer provides us with an introduction to these players. Priceless. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Please keep the reviews coming, y'all. As you can hear, there's a good chance we'll read yours in an episode and give you a shout-out. Like I said, Larry has gotten very busy very quickly on the Atlanta scene, but our conversation didn't take us into too many specifics about his gigging life. Uh, We got more into some life and career path areas, as well as some overarching musical and drumming concepts. Larry is a very savvy dude, musically, professionally, technically, and culturally, and everything about the career he's building seems to be the result of careful thought and deliberate moves on his part. So it was cool to get inside his head for a bit. Hope you dig it too. Let's get to it with Larry Wilson. How long has that jam been going? Uh, the, the jam at 10 ATL has been going probably for about, um, I want to say a little bit over a year now. Yeah, on Monday nights. On Monday nights, every Monday night. It was from nine to twelve, and then they pushed it back from to nine thirty to twelve thirty. Uh huh. Because the I guess the crowd out in East Atlanta is a little bit of a late crowd. It is. They're, they're, <laughs> they're young, hip, and you know all that good stuff. So. Yeah. The times I've been to that jam session, like I I leave at you know midnight or twelve thirty, and like you step out into East Atlanta Village, and they're just getting going. Yeah, they're like, just walking they're <laughs> on just a walking Monday around. night. Yeah. Man. So did you did you approach that venue about doing a jam, or did they approach you? No. So here's how it went down. Um, you 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 know of course Sam Yee. Yeah. With Churchill Grounds and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So ever since uh, Churchill closed, he's been doing the pop up jams around town. Right. Um, and this venue was just another one of those pop up jams. Mm-hmm. Um, and. When he initially started it, I think I was I was pretty fresh in the town and I was just making my way around the scene. Yeah, and you know he he extended me the opportunity to just play drums on on the gigs, right. to be the house drummer, uh, which was great because it's a chance for me to play consistently. You know, some jazz at least once a week. Yeah, you know, so uh, at the time that is, so I took it and and. I'm not sure how the mic got in my hand, but the <laughs> mic got in my hand. And um, I guess the, the the people just really took to me as a host. Mm-hmm. So um, 
it kind of transformed into me being synonymous with the night. Right. You know, just because of the hosting and, you know, the energy that we that we try to create there. Yeah. Uh, and it's become one of the, you know, the top jams. Yeah. And, and like, describe the energy that you try to create there. Because it, it feels different than a lot of the jams yeah. I've so been to. It's definitely, to me, it's it's more on the hip side. Yeah. Um, because you've got a lot of you got a lot of young people, um, and by young I mean young professionals. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, people in their their twenties and thirties um, that are just into the nightlife scene. Right, they're not musicians. They're not musicians. They're just hanging. They're just hanging. And Ten ATL is like a bar, hookah lounge, it's a hookah lounge, cigar lounge. Yep, like all in the one. And they let you eat there too. That's so, right. That's right. Uh, you can bring in food from out. You know, from the other restaurants and you know vendors from outside you can bring it in there and uh and eat as well right so that's really cool and the the fact that there are civilians there like you know most jam sessions you go to especially jazz jams civilians is perfect (laughs) i mean it's just it's full you know most jams i go to it's full of jazz musicians and college students right and uh you know people who are there to play yeah um but with the with with your jam like there's all the musicians that show up to play, but the place is packed out with, like you said, people who are just hanging yeah. for the nightlife. Um, and there, I think the people while they're hanging, at the same time they're genuine music lovers. As that's well. true. Yeah, and they always show appreciation for the musicianship and and the the, the vibe and the sound that we create because we're not playing like um, some Muzak elevator music you right. know, kind of jazz. I mean, it's real deal you know very high standard of musicianship that's there you've been there you've played there yeah yeah and uh it's it's pretty high level Mm -hmm. and they enjoy it yeah they enjoy it to the point where if anybody comes in there that isn't to the level that you know they they make it known in some way do they yeah they do they make (laughs) it known in some way it's like okay this person is not not to the level we need we need them to somebody will come to me right (laughs) Whatever <laughs> to Sam, and then Sam will come to me. It's like, yeah, we gotta, uh, and that doesn't happen often, but it does happen. You know? yeah, yeah, they can't all be winners. Sometimes right. you're rolling for the sure. dice and you crap out. But for the most part, ninety five percent of the time, we have all great musicians and singers that come through there. Yeah, and I, I think because of like the the diversity of musicians that come in there, and the fact that there are so many civilians, um, the music can kind of go anywhere. During the course of the night, and it does. Yeah, I mean, it's it it's. I, I think it starts out as a jazz jam, mm-hmm. right? That you playing jazz tunes. A singer or two will come up, but like you know, I've heard like fusion versions of uh, <laughs> human nature or something. Yeah, um, it can yeah, really we, go anywhere. We've done a lot in there because because the and this goes back to the thing you were talking about the energy and the vibe. We try to keep it very open and very free. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean. Um, because we trust the musicians in there, mm-hmm. you know, from the house band to the cats that walk through the door. Right. We trust that everybody is on on the level to where, you know, no matter where we go, that it can be handled mm-hmm. with some sensitivity and musicality. Right. Right. Um, so we've done, you know, everything from the standards to turning an Asley Brothers tune into a swing song, or yeah. uh, you know, funking up a, you know, putting up a, a funk beat on a you know, a jazz standard and turning it into like a hip hop thing. It's like we like to fuse and, and cross pollinate and that's more because I recognize the audience. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um the audience in there is not like you said, they're not music school students and they're not right. you know, um they're not all musicians. They're just lay people, a lot of them. Right. They come in and have a good time. They may or may not listen to jazz on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. So while we're doing the straight ahead thing, every once in a while we need to put in something that kind of bridges the gap. Like, okay, this is another way that jazz can, you know, interpret another genre. Right. You know? And I've been uh, I've been there like a, a bunch of times now, but it seems like it can. It's it's different from week to week. Like one week, whoever's there might be really digging the straight ahead stuff. 
and and uh, you know, there's a couple horns playing and doing long solos, and like people are into that. Yeah. Another week, it's more groove, it's more funk, it's more you know. So you got to read the room that way, right? Yes, I always try to read the room. Yeah. Because that's the only way to keep it fresh. Because the room is always different. Right. Even though you may now we got some you know common faces that we see, you know, week to week, but there's always a different energy in the room. Yeah. You know, and if we if we approach it with the same you know, kind of cookie cutter mentality every week, then it's going to get boring. Right. And it's going to be hard to sustain, especially a new jam session that isn't, you know, established per se mm-hmm. at a venue that's not per se established. Mm-hmm. It's just new. It's just a, it's a thing that's being built. Right. So you got to keep it fresh and you got to keep it, you know, always evolving. Yeah. And, and, you know, kind of, turning into whatever the people kind of gravitate to at the time. That's a good point about about like evolving because you know in every in every city that I've lived in there are there are jams there are weekly jams and some of them you you go a couple times and then you get a sense you're like I I I know what goes on at that jam. I know who's going to be there. I know what they're going to be playing, and at a certain point, you're like, I I don't need to go, right? Exactly <laughs> anymore. But with your jam, especially, I f- I feel like you know, let's let's see what it's going to be this week. Let's see who's going to be there. You know, and um, you never know who walk, who's going to walk in the room. I've been I've been shocked a few times. Yeah, with who walks in the rooms. You know, we've we've had Russell Gunn just show up. Right. We've had uh, one of my favorite drummers, Stanley Randolph, just showed up. Yeah, I was there that night. Yeah, with yeah. Lil John Roberts and yeah, Lil John is there more often than not, isn't he? Yeah, he's he's uh he he's actually there. You know, not every week, but he like at least once a month he'll yeah. pop through. Yeah, yeah. And I always ask him to play, and he's like, Nah, man. He's always like getting off of some strenuous rehearsal or right. getting off a tour, and he's like. He's just trying to chill, so we so we let him chill. Right. Um, but it's really an honor just to have him in there. Yeah. Um, yeah. With some heavy hitters, man, they come through, and uh, it's it's always special when they do, because it's like it's almost like them vetting it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it like okay, this jam session is hot. Right. Because the cats roll through. Right. It's not just you know people that want to play. It's the people that are playing. Right. And that 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 have you know achieved a lot in the especially in the Atlanta music scene, mm-hmm. it's like that really kind of validates the night. Yeah, you know. Yeah, you know uh, Robert Boone. Yeah. So I I interviewed him a couple of weeks ago, and and we were talking about the Atlanta scene and and how many jams there are right now. Yeah, it's crazy. And he was like, it's it's a double edged sword because you know there's a lot of jams, there's a lot of opportunities to play and hang. But he feels like it's it's kind of at the expense of uh, the creative scene, and like instead of you know instead of having so many jams, there should be some places where a band does a once a week residency, whether it's a singer songwriter, a jazz group, sure. or whatever, and just have more of a set thing for musicians and bands to like cultivate um, uh, a set list or uh, audience or or whatever. Well, I, what what are your opinions on like? You know the jam scene versus the like. Let's create something. I scene. agree. I agree to a certain extent. Now I do believe that Atlanta does have um, venues and platforms where that's possible. Mm-hmm. You've got you know Elliott Street. You've got um, Soul Village over in Five Points. You've got, of course, the Velvet Note. Yeah. You know, yeah. They, because I mean, those are those are places where, you know, a lot of the the musicians and artists that are here can actually go and and you know do stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I believe that there are outlets. They don't they don't not exist. Right. But I do agree that the jam the I guess because there's like almost two every night. <laughs> Seems like in it. Atlanta. Yeah. You know, in some way, shape, or form, there's like two jams going on. Mm-hmm. So I think that if there wasn't as many, there would probably be, with the amount of musicianship and talent we have, there would probably be a greater demand for something to go on. But I think that that requires a venue. Right. Um, yeah. It requires a home for. For that, that's dedicated to that, right? And uh, I don't think the 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 actual metro Atlanta area has 
a home like that. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's plenty of places where they bring in national acts, right. where they bring in international acts, where they bring in like some of the high dollar uh, artists. But I don't think that there's a place that um, that local cats can go and actually put on shows and actually coordinate events and stuff like that. I don't know. Yeah. But there are little places that you can go. Right. So I mean, there's you know, there's Eddie's Attic, there's Venkman's, there's Elliott yep. Street, that you Zebus. know, Zebus, sure, yeah, and they all do. Um, you know, they they all have that to a certain extent, like you said. But I, you're you're right. I'm I'm hard pressed to think of a room in Atlanta that is just dedicated every night of the week or most nights of the week to local original creative acts. And I think there's there's a need for yeah, it. Yeah, there's a need for it for sure. There's a need for it, and and I mean, I think any major market city mm-hmm. should have at least two or three of those. Yeah, you know, Atlanta's got. Seven million people, or something like that, yeah. in this area, it, it's a major market city. Yeah. It's, it's almost like a New York or an LA or Miami, you know. So, you know, those places do have those cities do have venues like that. Right. Atlanta should have one. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's weird. There's like close. It's it's like a it's like a donut hole almost because there are very low level places that have tons of local stuff that's kind of just getting going. Mm-hmm. You know, like. Um, Elliott Street or something. And then there's higher level places like City Winery where they have plenty of Atlanta acts in there. Right, they but do. those Atlanta acts are also traveling around. Yep. But there's nowhere in the middle that's just like kind of uh, um, not a proving ground, but like a um, an incubator, you know. Yeah. Um, Churchill was that when mm-hmm. it was around. But only for the jazz scene. Only for the jazz scene. Right, right. Yeah. Um, on the other scenes, I mean, that. Now we're getting into a whole other conversation about, you know, different genres and different styles of music and their followings. Right. Because every every genre has its different support system. Mm-hmm. Um, and some is more strong than others. Of course, you know, with this being Atlanta, the hip-hop R&B scene is very strong. Yeah. So there's a lot of places where an R&B band or a cover band or, you know... Um, a band that is doing original music can go and play. Yeah, a place like St. James Live, maybe. St. James Live, Apache. Yeah, um, you know, there's a there's a bunch of those Pizza Bar, mm-hmm. um, even Ten. You know, yeah. is, is one of those places. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's a lot of there's a there's a lot more places for that to happen than I would say jazz. Right, or like a singer songwriter, or a singer songwriter, you know, folksy kind of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's a lot more support for that in the city because the market for it is great. Right, sure, sure. Um, so, and I think venue owners recognize that, and they're yeah. they're, they're going to respond and kind because they want to bring in people and make money. And in that regard, the the other thing that we're all competing with is just the the popularity of tribute acts and tribute bands, yep. which we've both been a part of, whether Absolutely. it's ATL Collective or whatever else. Absolutely. been in Atlanta? I've been in Atlanta now, I guess this September makes two years. Okay. And you came from where in Florida? I I came from Jacksonville, Florida. Jax. Jacksonville, Florida. Yeah, Duval County, as they say. Is that where you grew up? That is where I grew up. You went to school there? Yeah, I went to school there. Um, I was born in Cleveland, Ohio. Oh, okay. And when I was, I may have been a year old when we moved to Florida. Right. Um, So... Florida is pretty much all I know. In you, terms you were of, brought to Florida through no fault of your own. Through no fault of my <laughs> own. Uh, Florida's been very good to me, man. I went to performing arts school all the way from sixth grade all the way through high school. Wow. So I was exposed to a very high level of music education yeah. you know, at a young age. And, and I stayed in it until, you know, even through college. Right. You know, I went to Florida State University. Uh-huh. I'm majoring in jazz studies there. And, um... So I mean, it's been a good it's been a good incubator for me in Tallahassee, right? And that's in Tallahassee. Yeah, yeah. That school is a machine, man. man they they crank out some great people, man. And, I mean, I mean, Leon Anderson and Rodney Jordan, and, yeah. Um, Bill Bill Peterson and and all of those cats. They they really built a program. Yeah, 
Yeah. And they've turned out some heavy hitters. It's it's incredible. I mean, I've talked to there's I mean, there's you, there's um Robert Robert Boone who I just mentioned, Jameson Ross. Jameson Ross, yeah, my Rick brother. Lawler. Rick Lawler, uh, yes. I mean, there's some Kevin like, Smith, uh Che Marshall. Yeah. It, you know, they've all they've all been there. Yeah. You know, it's 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 a heavy school. It's man. a hell of a program, man. Yeah. I have not been down there, and I have not met uh, Rodney or, or any any of the other. Well, Rodney actually used to live in Atlanta. Did he really? Yeah, back in the day. He And he was one of the – him and I think uh, Reggie Ville was they, – they were the guys yeah. for a while in yeah, Atlanta yeah. Uh, in, the, in the 80s and 90s. And, uh, and then Rodney took the, took the gig in Tallahassee and, you know, hasn't looked back. Uh-huh. But um, – well, he has he has come back a lot, but he hasn't he hasn't looked back. I mean, he's he's full professor now and he's got his tenure and mm-hmm. it's crazy. But yeah. um, yeah, that's a great school and I, I really value my time there. Yeah, I learned a lot. Yeah, my time there. Did it did it kick your ass? Absolutely. <laughs> it's not good unless it kicks your ass. Right, right. I like I like getting my I like that. Yeah, and did you enter school knowing like I'm I'm gonna get my ass kicked and I'm gonna I, come? I up? entered school hoping. Right, right. That I would get my ass kicked, like that it wouldn't be easy. Yeah. Because I like to grow and I like to learn, mm-hmm. and um, I like to be challenged. Um, because I'm 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 a naturally talented guy, so it's easy for me to be bored. Yeah, yeah, and it's easy for like when you have some natural talent, it's easy to coast. It is, you know, because and- you can just because you can just kind of toe the line of whatever the expectant. You know, whatever is expected of you, you can actually toe that line without having to really exert yourself. Right. So it's really special to find people who see that in you uh-huh. and challenge to a greater level, you know, what your limits are because you already have a lot of the natural things. Yeah. That people, that a lot of other people will study or shed or work for years to kind of uh, tune in and hone in those skills. If you actually have those already, yeah, it's 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 special to find somebody who can take it to the next level right. and not just allow you to just coast. What do you feel some of those things are or were for you that came naturally, and what what were some of the things that you ran up against a wall and you were like, oh, this is something I actually have to put some effort into? Um, for me, I think groove interpretation came very natural hmm. um, because you know coming up in church. As I did, um, you're exposed to everything mm-hmm. because gospel music kind of embodies and takes away from many genres. Yeah, so you're you're exposed to, in some way, shape, or form, many different styles and grooves and you know patterns and stuff like that as a drummer. Right at a at a young age because that's it's just a high level. Of, and you're just exposed to many different drummers, aren't you? Absolutely. Like, I mean cuz everybody plays. Right. I mean, look. <laughs> you know, I play I play organ now because of that in church. Yeah. At my church I play the organ. And that's because there's only you know, two or three good organists around and there's 50 good drummers mm-hmm. for every one organist. Right. So you can be playing drums and there's like a whole line of people that you know yep. that are waiting to play I've heard this story yeah so it's, <laughs> and it's cool I mean it's it's great it, it makes you and it, that's why a lot of the, the, the church drummers are kind of the, the torch bearers right now mm-hmm. um, because that environment is very it's 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 love, but it's competitive at the same time because you got all these people that want to play and that can play. Right. So you got to be like, you got to bring it. Yeah. Um, and somebody else told me about um, that. I think it was Q Robinson was telling me because of the nature of that, where you've got like dozens of drummers literally lined up to play. Um, that's that's part of where um, like the the gospel chops thing came from, for better or for worse, is because. You've got you've got one song. You've got like four minutes to yeah. to try and do to, something to prove that you're yeah right you absolutely do right and plan plan like a subtle supportive groove isn't going to turn many heads in that environment. No, yeah. <laughs> it's the, the the gospel chops the gospel chops as they say scene is all about being fast and loud. Yeah, um, yeah. which in some ways has pushed the art form forward of drumming. Mm-hmm. Um, because you have a lot of drummers now that you know the standard has been raised. Yeah. Because of because of the proficiency and the precision and 
the the technical you know agility that you have to have to to play that kind of music right it's you know without formal training too right so a lot of them a lot of them don't have any kind of fundamental you know literacy yeah. when it comes to sticking and when it comes to coordination they just know how to play drums mm-hmm. and they've worked it out however it feels good to their body mm-hmm. you know they've worked out their own technique yeah um yeah and that that kind of pushes the 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 art form forward but at the same time the musicality sometimes suffers right because you don't pay a lot of attention to subtlety you right. don't pay a lot of attention to finesse or dynamics or uh you don't pay a lot of attention sometimes to the authenticity of certain grooves mm-hmm. and patterns and genres. You just sure. kind of fake it till you make it, as they say. Right. So. Right. Charles Lamont told me about like you know when he sometimes he talks to uh, you know drummers in his church or, or younger drummers who are in their teens or early twenties, and they'll be talking about um, you know any any given drummer, and the young cats will say, oh, "Man, he's he's two pocket." <laughs> <laughs> well, like pocket does not impress. They them. probably uh, they probably would also say that he's too rich. <laughs> he's got too much money, right? Because <laughs> that's what I mean. That's where the money is in the pocket. Mm-hmm. No pun intended. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? That's where the money goes. Like if you if you can if you can hold a groove and you can make the music feel good, you'll never stop working. Right. I know a lot of amazing drummers. Like they can they can play circles around just about anybody, but they're at home. <laughs> it's, they're, at, they're, at, they're at the crib just chilling yeah. because they don't know how to play music. Right. They don't know how to play with a band. Right. And that's a whole different mindset. And I think, you know, I don't want to single out gospel because most genres are, are guilty of that. People, I mean, even people jazz. In, people in the jazz world are yeah. guilty of that. And I think it's partly generational. You know, when you're Very when you're true. younger, you just want to blast. Like Very true. You know, you wanna you wanna pull out your Tony Williams shit on the steakhouse gig. And that <laughs> and, and and to be honest, that's kind of the environment we're in right now. Mm-hmm. You know. Where a lot of the young cats are being pushed out there before they have a full chance to develop. Yeah. And now they have these platforms that they can't really handle. Right. Because they haven't they haven't gone through any kind of vetting process. They haven't go, they haven't paid any dues. Right. You know. Right. Uh, so they haven't had any relationships. They haven't had any relationships. Yeah. They haven't been apprenticed. Yeah. Which is also a big part. Yeah. Like, uh, any mu- and I take this for any genre of music operates the, the the art form is pushed forward in its most truest form it's pushed forward through secession mm-hmm. like who did you come from who mm-hmm. who laid hands on you as we say in the church who laid hands on you right right you know you, if you if you're going to preach or become a pastor somebody has to lay hands on you uh-huh you know a lot of these a lot of musicians in general but especially drummers are just getting out there going straight from their bedroom where they shed right and they go right on tour yeah, but they've never gigged. They've never been in a situation where they have to serve, you know, you know, or or kind of sit under a wiser, older musician that kind of teaches them the game, teaches them the business. Yeah. So that's why sometimes the business, get, the the business side of things, gets driven down. You know, the market rate for musicians has kind of shrunk a little bit mm-hmm. because of that. Yeah. Because you got the younger musicians that come out here. They play for a sandwich because they don't know any better. Right. And they don't have no bills anyway. Right. And then the the, the cats that are, are out here working full-time musicians, it's like, okay, now, now venue owners and, and concert promoters and tour managers are like, well, yeah, the market rate used to be 1500 a show, you know, on tour. Now, you know, I could, I could get this young cat that's blasting for $300 a show. Right. If that. Yeah, <laughs> I could really I could just let them take pictures on Instagram and you know give their gig accept acceptance speech and that's it. You know that's pretty much it. <laughs> the gig per acceptance speech. Yeah, it's like mm-hmm. yeah, which is cool. Hey man, y'all do it. Right. But it's it's the bigger picture suffers if we're not careful. Right. Right. I like the idea of apprenticeship because that can take so many different forms. That can be 
like a private instructor that you study with yeah. for years and years. Yeah. Or that could be, um, you know, someone that you only meet a couple times that you kind of model yourself after or who gives you some advice on an occasion or two. Um, somebody that you follow their career and say, like, you just kind of observe how they play, how they operate, yeah. how they comport themselves. And, and, you know, model yourself after that, personally and professionally. Yeah, to me, that not, not enough of that is going on anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think everyone has—everyone is complicit in that issue. If, if, we're gonna, if it is an issue, I think everyone, even the, even the old heads, the yeah. older drummers or musicians— are complicit because they don't they don't sometimes they don't reach back and share mm-hmm. what they've gained over the years yeah you know or they they look at the younger uh the younger generation coming up and they kind of write them off as just you know some knuckleheads that don't know nothing well then if we don't know nothing then show us something yeah you know yeah. teach us right you know and then we sometimes we the younger generation and the generation coming even after me sometimes they don't like to listen right you know because they may be more advanced in ability. The, you know, we can I can play circles around some of the older cats, mm-hmm. but I don't know everything that they know. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. And music is much more than what you can play. Yeah, music is about how you play. It, yeah, it's mostly about what you know, what you know, yeah. and how you express it. Mm-hmm. Especially in a in a situation where you're playing with other musicians, which is where you're going to make your money at anyway. Right. Only only if handful of drummers are out there making money as solo artists yeah yeah you know, and only it's, a it's, handful it's it's a cool paradox that like the the simplest playing usually is a result of the most knowledge absolutely you know you're absolutely right um if you take some of the most successful some of the highest paid drummers in the world you know quest love mm-hmm. ringo star phil collins like all these cats man right they are not necessarily the the best drummers or the most extravagant drummers. Right. But they possess a lot of knowledge with how to interpret music. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. All the like all the cats. J.R. Robinson. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> yeah. I mean I'm telling all you, man. Cats. All the yeah, absolutely. Clyde Stubblefield. Yeah. And and all I mean, all of them really possess a knowledge with how to play music that you know, it, it goes way beyond just doing a bunch of chops. Right. It's like a keyhole. Like, what you're seeing them do is just, a like, a, the tiniest little window into the giant room of knowledge yeah. that's behind them. You're absolutely you right. And, the, and keyhole is a very... is a very perfect way to put that. Yeah. That's, that's the perfect term. Um... I, I I use the term iceberg. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what you see on the surface is a whole like another body below the surface, right? That you just never really experience, but it's a part. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Icebergs don't float. Like the only yeah. reason, yeah. I mean, yeah. they they do, but the only reason you can see what you can see is because it's being supported from underneath. Yeah, exactly, by, exactly uh, by a, by a much larger portion of its body. Right. Right. You know, so I don't want to get into a physics discussion. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Got to steer away from that real fast. Exactly. <laughs> you moved here like two years ago. Yeah. What What was the the process and the lead up of? Because it's not just you. You're married. You got two kids. Yeah. One of which is right here. Yep. Is he hanging in there? He's hanging. All right, good. <laughs> um, what was the decision-making process and the moving process and uh, why Atlanta? Well, it was actually kind of kind of quick, man. Really, I was on my way to New York. Mm. Our, New York is my dream city. I've always wanted to live there. And, mm-hmm. You know, I, we were making plans. We were looking at houses up there and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and just... I don't know. On a, on a, on a dime, it just kind of shifted. Like, you know, what I think we should. We're supposed. I just felt like the universe or God, or you know, was leading me to Atlanta. Like, this is where I needed to be. Hmm. And um, and it's not that anything was going different. You know, difficult with moving to New York. I had I had already had connections up there. People were like, yo, got you when you get here. Mm-hmm. You know, come on. Um, so. 
the New York thing would have worked, mm-hmm. but I don't think it would have worked out the way Atlanta has worked out. Yeah. Um, so the decision was made really overnight. We de- we decided that Atlanta was it. Wow. And you know, within I guess about six months, we were here. Wow. Yeah. So and what what specifically pointed you to Atlanta? Do you have connections here? Did doors open for you here, and then that yeah. kind of turned your head towards it? Yeah. And particularly in the church gospels arena mm-hmm. because I, I've been working heavily in that in that industry for you know the past 10 years as a producer and a musician mm-hmm. so I have a lot of connections here because Atlanta is a hub for that sure uh, the gospel music scene um, the church scene yeah Atlanta's a, a really you know like a deeply rooted hub in that yeah so I had a lot of connections in that area that that kind of helped me to at least start making money and establishing myself when I got here. Right. Um, but I also knew that Atlanta had a deeper music scene um, where, you know, moves could be made in other j- industries Right. At, at still a very high level. The yeah. jazz scene, the hip-hop scene, the R&B scene, uh, the, you know, the party band scene. Yeah. You know, how, however you want to do it, mm-hmm. I saw that there was potential for growth and movement in Atlanta mm-hmm. um, and and I thought that it was a good opportunity to get on the ground floor of, of what's building because right. I, I feel like Atlanta's about to go through another boom season I think it is yeah there's a lot like, of money there's a lot of money there's a lot of companies there's a lot of people coming in there's yep. a lot of things being built because there's an energy that's kind of flowing through this city mm-hmm. that's going to cause another boom kind of like what we saw in the 90s Right. And what we saw in the early 2000s where it was another boom. Right. After um, the Olympics. Yeah. I, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, but this time I think it's going to be a little bit different. It's going to be more on the corporate side and it's going to be more on the, the creative arts side where we see a lot of the renaissance-ish age come through Atlanta. Mm-hmm. A lot of creatives, a lot of artists. Yeah. Uh, independent you know, right, and I think it's it's already I can see it. It's going to be a lot of cross breeding with other media and other disciplines, which is going to be great. Of course, it's going to be great, but it's it's not going to be like a, a you know an organic nuclear original music I, thing. I agree. It's going to be in service to bigger creative endeavors. I agree. Um, you know, for better or for worse, that has that that has it has its pitfalls. I don't. I can't. I can't really. You know, outside of the. Um, Outside of of like I said, rap music and and R and B to a degree, I don't think that that Atlanta has an indigenous music form. I was wondering about that because, like you know, Nashville does, Memphis does, New Orleans does, Miami does, Miami does, um, New York does, Chicago does, right? Even even out west, they have a they have a sound. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what Atlanta's sound is. Yeah, I mean, there are so many. There's there's tons of famous acts that have come out of Atlanta of over the years. But but can you point to any one of them and say like that's Atlanta? Not you know it, whether it, it's it whether de- it depends on the genre because and like I said in rap yes you can sure okay in R and B yes you can right you can point to a specific era or a specific person and say. That was the trailblazer of the sound of Atlanta, right? You know, um, in other in other fields, it's harder. Mm-hmm. Not I, I, not to say that it doesn't exist. I, for me, speaking of myself, I haven't been here long enough to to find out. What yeah, it is. I don't think I have either. But just that in and of itself means that it's not necessarily a like out there like it's not the face of Atlanta right if you have to be here and kind of search for it and and find it then then it's not you know it's not something Atlanta's famous for right Um, but that's also a good thing sure because it's an opportunity for the people that are here like myself like you to establish it right it's not chained to a legacy exactly I lived in Kansas City for seven years and and the jazz scene there for a long time was chained to the legacy of of big band and bebop of course um, and it still honors that but I, I think during the time I was there like the early 2000s um, it kind of it broke away from that it said it we're gonna you know we're gonna keep this legacy with us but we're not gonna let it uh, hold us back from 
creating new, creating more, creating better, um, all that. And I feel like uh, Atlanta is kind of starting there. It doesn't have a legacy to be chained to. So it's that's like, right. what do you want to be? That's um, right. I think that's the that's the beauty of it. Mm-hmm. Um, is that there isn't like a, you know, like New York has the swing era. Right. You know, and, and well, New York has all the eras. Yeah. <laughs> it was, all of those eras were born there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Atlanta doesn't really have that per se. Not not on every not on every circle. Mm-hmm. So, but what it does have to establish it. What it does have, like you said, is just a high quality, very high quality of musicianship. Yeah, has a high quality, I think, of opportunities as well. Sure, sure. Um, the opportunities for a lot of musicians and creatives, uh, and even business people in other cities, are not as qualitative as they are here. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, you can you can do a lot at a high level in Atlanta. Yeah, a lot because the outlet is here. Right, it's accessible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, it's, when you made the decision to move here, um, was it partly like was was living in New York and playing there kind of a um, a creative dream, like to be part of the New York jazz scene? Yeah, I think so. And was moving to Atlanta more of a practical decision about, like, I can get in on a lot of different stuff that'll be high quality, I'll make a living? Um, no, because I could have did that in New York. Yeah? You know, I have enough I have enough connections and contacts in New York. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I, can, I, I, I can play good enough to at least work there. Right. And then... With my hunger for knowledge and and uh, you know the it, it takes you know it takes a certain degree of humility to go somewhere and want to be because New York is going to kick your ass yeah so you have to, if you want that you're definitely going to get it mm-hmm. for sure and that's what I want you know from you know that experience I wanted to go and get my ass kicked by New York because everybody has. Right. All the greats have been through New York and have cut their teeth there and have gotten their battle scars there. And, and it's turned them out to, that's why they say if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Yeah. You know, because it's true because it's, it's such a, it's such an intense environment. Mm-hmm. You know, the energy is so intense um, that if you can survive it, learn from it, thrive from it. That's the key. Then you can take that and you can conquer the world with it. Yeah, you know. I don't think when it comes to um, you know choosing a city or a scene to live in, mm-hmm. um, there's you know there's definitely something to be said for you know signing up for an ass kicking. Yeah, going and get your experience, getting your battle scars. But I don't I don't think you'll be truly happy and and truly successful unless you can, like you said, thrive on that environment. If that's what feeds you, if that's what motivates you, mm-hmm. then you'll do fine. But if it if it's intimidating or exhausting or, you know, uh, then... And it is, it is going to be. Sure. Even if, you, even if you want it, even if you enjoy it, you're going to have moments where you're intimidated. You're going to have moments where you're frustrated. Right. Where you're drained, where you're unsure. Mm-hmm. Because you don't, like, okay, am I really supposed to be doing this? Like, can I really be successful during this with all of these people that do it better than me? Right. You know, there's so many people that play better people that look better people that have better people skill people skills right people that have more money more resources less debt less debt <laughs> no kids yeah exactly <laughs> they more freedom to move around right. so it's like can i really make it um but if if you take that and use it as fuel and don't use it as a barrier right you know it, it can serve you mm-hmm. um so that's you know, and that that exists even here. Sure, you know, it exists here, mm-hmm. um, and and that's just something that you have to find out when you get here. Right. But uh, that was the draw to New York. I mean, Atlanta wasn't necessarily a practical decision on the front end, but it's turned out to work like it was practical. Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Because I now as I move, as I as we live here, and as we you know make our moves, we just moved into a house, mm-hmm. a really nice big house. Yeah. Um, that wouldn't have been possible this quick, necessarily up, 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 you know, in New York or ever. Yeah, because I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just so expensive to live up there. Yeah, you know. So I think of things like that. I think mm-hmm. of things like my kids. You know how they, you know, they they're enjoying their school environment, and you know they're they're able to to have space to you know grow and and move around. How we're we're 
still relatively close to our families and right. you know we can get down there if we need to yeah so that stuff in hindsight it's like this is why it it was better it's and and atlanta has struck that perfect balance for me too about quality of work versus quality of life Perfect, you know, and and you gotta like. I think every musician has to decide where that balance is. Yeah, because some musicians like don't care about their quality of life, and they can have six roommates mm-hmm. in a sixth floor walk up. Yeah, and and eat junk food all the time, yeah. and, and just have and just put everything they've got into playing and into the scene, and what and they're happy and not get married to they're in their forties. Exactly, not have kids. And other musicians are the the polar opposite. They're like, yeah. I just want a few opportunities to play. I I want to live in the middle of nowhere. I don't want to hassle. Yeah. Like, I want to be able to drive wherever I want. Yeah. And just like leave me alone. I'll yeah. play when I want. Yeah. But then in the middle, I think there's guys like you and me. We want to be part of a vibrant scene, mm-hmm. have good opportunities artistically and financially, but also like just have a house. Yeah. With a yard. <laughs> yeah. What a yard. <laughs> you know. What a decent car. Right. And you know, be able to you know afford to have, to enjoy life. Right. And. Even do man, I got like I said, I know a lot of people in New York, and a lot of them have the same gripe. Mm-hmm. They like, yeah, man, it's great here, but, <laughs> but, you know, it, it's, it's a task. Yeah, like you know, I was just talking to one of my good friends who who plays trumpet up there. He was like, yeah, man. I mean, if you're up here, you're pretty much doing this all the time. You don't have time for anything else. You don't right. have time for a family. You don't have time. For a vacation. Vacation. Oh, man. Yeah. What is that? <laughs> While you're on vacation, there's like a thousand people moving into the city trying to get your job. Right. It's like you can't you can't slow down. So it's like, I think of that and I'm like, okay, maybe that wouldn't have been. Cause you know, the, the universe knows better than we do. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like maybe that wouldn't have been a good decision if mm-hmm. I had gone up there with a young, fa- with such a young family yeah. and building it. Um, it may not. It may not have been the best move. So now that I'm here and I'm I'm moving around and working, I get a chance to kind of spread my wings in all the areas I want to. Yeah, and and actually at a, be at a very high level. And I also get to have the house, and I also get to have right. my family being happy and right. stable and all that kind of stuff. You so, just you get the sense of being like a kind of responsible, established adult, exactly. Instead of just one of ten thousand people who are just hustling and trying to do it, it's like okay, I've got my feet under that me. That is the truth, you know. That's the truth. Yeah, that's the truth. That's the beauty of this city. Yeah, yeah. you know, for me. This episode is brought to you by DrumSellers.com, the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers, and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free, and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at DrumSellers.com. Let's talk about drums for a second because we've been talking about life and all the rest. Yeah, okay. Um, So... The first thing I want to I want to talk to you about is is just the fact that you are a, a gifted soloist. You are an unbelievable soloist. Thank you, man. And um, we don't talk about you know soloing and improvisation and all that a whole lot on this podcast because, like you said earlier, our emphasis is on you know time, groove, pocket, feet, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, but your your soloing reminds me of I, I studied with Bobby Watson. Um, in Kansas City, who was a saxophonist with the Jazz Messengers and, and um, oh, wow, cool. Horizon and all the rest. And the first thing I noticed about his soloing and his improvisation is that it was so full of notes, but it like it, it wasn't it wasn't just notes for notes' sake. It was it was um, this pointillistic you know uh, gesture that was full of thousands of little tiny notes, mm-hmm. and that's how I feel about your soloing because oh, man, that's big. The go- like I, I see the gospel chops thing in there, but but rather than rather than being like just the lick or just the notes, I I hear you creating much longer arcs and much longer phrases with all of these tiny little points. Yeah, where did that come from? Because it didn't just come from the gospel thing. I know that. Well, I I think you you kind of hit it. On the head and what and how you were describing it, but what I I guess my special sauce is that I'm fusing I'm fusing the 
the language of jazz and the, the kind of sentiment, the creativity, the phrasing mm-hmm. of jazz because I've, I'm trained in that. I'm formally and classically trained as a percussionist right. and as a jazz drummer. And then I'm fusing it with the raw, athletic, you know, kind of agility and all that kind of stuff that you get from being a gospel drummer. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a certain power. There's a certain transient there's you know, a lot of power yeah <laughs> that that you get from playing in church and if you can access it and use it in an intelligent way mm-hmm. it can really you know turn into some amazing stuff when you're soloing or when you're just interpreting different things musically yeah yeah you know what i mean um and you you also have an ability um to to sound like you said really powerful without being just completely fucking loud, <laughs> right? Which you know, a, a lot of a lot of gospel choppers, a lot of rock drummers, you know, whoever else, yeah. and even some jazz drummers, like they're just loud. Um, but you, um, you're able to kind of put out this wall of sound, you know, that's powerful and and in your face, but it's not like ugh. <laughs> I think that you comes know? from technique, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the drummers that have a sense of technique, they know how to play and and draw the sound from the drum which is what my teacher Leon Anderson taught taught me mm-hmm. was to draw the sound out of it mm-hmm. not to play not to play through the drum right but to kind of draw the sound out of it You're in and, partnership and, with it yeah. yeah and and that's how you kind of that's how you make the drums work for you instead of working it this is why I've had some of the same cymbals for years mm-hmm. while friends of mine will go through a set of cymbals every year mhm you know, it's because they, they don't know how to play the cymbal. They don't right. know how to strike the cymbal in a way that draws the sound out. They try to, like, beat the sound into the cymbal. Right. You know, and that's just not that's not the move. If, if you're going to be able to express yourself organically in the sense of an acoustic set. Yeah. You know. So um, I noticed that about your... It seems like you have different cymbals set up there every time I go to that gym. I have a lot of cymbals. But... In all of the cymbal setups, like I'll sit down and play your set, and and none, it, it doesn't seem to my ear or to my hands that any of the cymbals in that set like really go together. But when you play them, they they do because, like you said, you've learned like how to bring certain things out of each one of those cymbals. Yeah. Um, and I feel like too many too many drummers like I've dealt with this in my own playing like trying you gotta you gotta mix yourself volume wise but you've also gotta just mix yourself touch wise yeah from drum to drum or cymbal to cymbal and you know I I feel like that's a much more musical approach and goes back to what I was saying about your overall sound especially when you're soloing um, than just like you know getting all. HHX evolution symbols and just smacking them all. Yeah, which is <laughs> you know, which is totally idiotic to me. <laughs> Not HHXs. Get you some ZBTs or something and smack them. <laughs> SBRs or something. Right. No, but uh, seriously though, I, I think, and this is why I, I actually like to play with. I have my home set. Mm-hmm. I have my I have my symbol setup that is that's Bay as I call them. That's that's my that's my girl. Right. Like so. I'll use that especially when I'm recording or or I'm on an important gig where mm-hmm. I really need to have my sound together. Yeah. But you know, for the weekly thing, I can uh, I can afford to kind of switch it up and I like to. Right. Every now and again I like to switch it up. Yeah. And it's um, not just with the cymbals, like you know, your your setup can be, you know, give or take a couple cymbals or give or take a couple toms. Yeah, or yeah. A couple sometimes snares. I'll add a, sometimes <laughs> I use a different snare, sometimes sometimes a completely different kit. Yeah. Um, but I think it kind of it it's like an exercise on just drawing some kind of sound, drawing my sound out of the drums, right? No matter what kit I'm sitting behind, right? You know, and that's man, that's a challenge, especially playing so many backline kits. Um, and since I've lived in Atlanta, like when we lived in L.A., um, we had a one bedroom apartment. I had nowhere to set up my drums. Like I couldn't practice. I was playing on other people's kits all the time. I was just there. Yeah. <laughs> I got this house. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so now that I've been in Atlanta, I have this room and, and I'm playing my set more often. Like I'm, I'm more and more reluctant to change the setup. Um, and I think it's just because I want to feel at home. Like I have to, I have to get to a point where I just feel completely at home 
on my drums, you know, I'll change the cymbals once in a while and I'll change the sizes of the drums, mm-hmm. but just like in terms of like what I'm playing and how I'm mixing myself and how I'm striking everything, I feel like I'm starting to come to like a level, like a neutral where from there I'll be able to start branching out and you know try and try and things out the yeah. way you are now. Yeah, and I I think the 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 key behind all of that is to try to challenge your ear and your and your really your hands. Yeah. You know, cuz what what we do is we develop a muscle memory which is cool which you have to mm-hmm. um to really be consistent as a drummer, but at the same time it's always cool to kind of throw yourself off sometimes to change the setup at a time or place a symbol more to the right sometimes. Yeah. It's like I do some of that on purpose. Sometimes I'll change the height. I'll I'll do I'll do those little silly stuff to throw myself off. It'll make you pay attention, but it makes you hear a lot more and kind of hone in on what you're doing. Right. That's right. that's what I cuz like I said I don't get a chance to shit mm-hmm. as much at right. home. Well, now I do cuz I have a house. But before then I didn't, so I had to find different ways to challenge myself. Right. I've found that the the reason that I've been so reluctant to like, you know, change my setup or experiment is that it it puts me too much in my head. Like I'm I'm thinking too much about the drum set and not enough about the music. True. You know, um but uh on on the other hand, like you said, you know, just changing the position of something or changing your instrumentation a little bit um will will just kind of knock you out of autopilot. Yeah. And, and well, that's why I have, that's why I said, like I said, I have a home setup. Yeah, this is like this is this is a setup where it's home. No matter what I'm doing, I can get around this set, right? Because I've I've developed the muscle memory there. It's there, mm-hmm. so I know exactly where to put my symbols. I know exactly where to put my tom. I'm still figuring out how to position my snare <laughs> the way where it's it's just. Cons- I'm always positioning my snare differently. Cause, and, but you're kind of a switch hitter with matched and trad. Yeah, right? I know, and that's another that's another thing. Because <laughs> my, you know, with me not I, the I spent, anguish I, on your face I right spent, now. You're I like, God some, damn it, what am I gonna do? Man, I spent some, <laughs> I spent so many years away from the music um, till my traditional grip is not as strong and as fluid as my match grip. Mine was not either. Yeah, so I'm still I'm I'm only three or four years in playing traditional grip on a on a consistent basis mm-hmm. um, since then this is of course since college right um, but so I'm developing it so what, what I'll do is I'll I have things that that feel good to me playing traditional grip mm-hmm. and then I have things that feel good to me ideas that feel better when I play match grip yeah and I'll just switch as I need to. Uh-huh. I, and I've gotten kind of, I've kind of forgiven myself for uh, kind of offending the traditional rule of, you know, like Buddy Rich said, you got to play it the drum set way. Right. Where it's traditional grip. Right. But just, it, just because you play match grip doesn't mean that you're not playing jazz. Sure, of course. Because we know a lot of great drummers that play match grip, like right. Bill Stewart. Yeah, one of my favorites. Uh, sometimes Ari Honing will play. Yep. Yep. Um, match. Uh, sometimes Brian Blade mm-hmm. switches to match grip, mm-hmm. and after seeing like, Tony Williams, yeah, toward the end of his toward the end of his you know life, later years, he would play match grip all the time, mm-hmm. and you know it 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 just it just kind of freed me from the mindset of I have to play traditional grip in order to be playing jazz, right? You know, it right. kind of freed me from that. Yeah, yeah. I I was a switch hitter up until about two years ago, and I had to kick. The trad to the curb, really? Yeah, because like like changing the setup, it it put me too much in my head. I was thinking about my hands and not thinking about the music. True. Um, and I would get into you know um, you know the middle of a fill or a particular groove or whatever, and I'd be kind of stuck in trad, and I'd be like, oh shit, I should have changed it over to match. Yeah. But it's too late now. Yeah. <laughs> I, I that happened. That still happens to me. Yeah. Yeah. That still um, happens to me. I just I just put it off to the side. Like, eh, well. I guess we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna muscle through it anyway. <laughs> right, right. Um, but it, like whether it's the grip or the setup or or whatever, it just seems that we're in this constant battle between muscle memory and exploration. Yeah, you know, like sometimes you got to rely on muscle memory. Sometimes you have to break it. Um, 
and and for me, like like I was saying, with the grip, with the setup, I felt like to um, to just be more free in my playing, I had to take the variables out when it came to grip and setup. You know, so that I was just concentrating on well, what my what my ear wanted to hear. That's not wrong. Yeah, yeah. There's no right or wrong. No, that but, no, that's definitely not wrong. And I, I mean, all of the all of the greats. You know, every everybody that's really proficient at what they do is the, they do that. Mm-hmm. Um, is because you have to you have to get beyond the instrument, right? You know, you had, and this is why it's really hard for drummers. This is probably the hardest thing about drummers. You know, most pianos are going to be set up the same way. Right. You got 88 keys. They're you know, normally going to be spaced the exact same way. Yeah. You, like, the action might be a little different, but, like, it's... For the most part, you know... piano. <laughs> if you're playing guitar, if you're playing a horn, the key, everything's kind of set up the same. Mm-hmm. Drums is kind of different in the fact of, at the bass level, it's really, like very individual right is what do you want it to be what do you want it to be yeah that's why sometimes when you sit behind another drummer's kit impossible yeah it's like man it, it can be a struggle but it's not necessarily you it's just the fact that you're in an environment where you're un, you're not familiar right you know you're, you're not used to the bass drum pedal feeling like it like it's feeling i've i've played some bass drum pedals it's like yeah no nah, i can't get around on this yeah because your your muscles are used, to, it's like your muscles are used to a certain resistance, mm-hmm. certain response. Uh, you, if, if you're used to a certain spacing on your cymbals and they're for some reason farther away or closer or spread further apart, it can it can turn into a chore to kind of get around and express because you you want to go naturally where you want to go. Right, right. You know, it can also cause you to interrogate your own setup and your own preferences. Yeah. Like, even if something that is unfamiliar to you isn't totally comfortable, I can't tell you how many drum sets I've sat on where something's got me thinking, like, do I really need my snare that high? Yeah. Or, like, do I, you know, do I really need my kick pedal, you know, uh, tensioned yeah. that much? Or, or you know, and it, so it won't cause me to, like, just adopt whatever that drummer is doing, but it'll cause me to make little tweaks. Yeah. I'm constantly tweaking just, like, little well, tiny things like that. That happened to me not not too long ago with, with my cymbal setup. I played another drummer's kit, and his cymbals were angled a little bit more sharply than mine mm-hmm. have been. And and I found that it was actually easier for me to swing on it. Yeah. Um, and I was like, well, maybe I should angle mine a little bit more. Mm-hmm. To, to kind of get a more comfortable flow from my arm through the stick to the cymbal. Yeah, yeah. You know, instead of, you know, kind of like... Whose drum set was that? Was that Chizarek? No, I think it might have been... Um, I actually think it might have been Chris Burroughs. Oh, set. cool. Okay. It might have been Chris's. It was either Chris or Marlon. Right. One of them. Right, right. I was like, the, the angle of the cymbal was such... It was like, hmm. Mm-hmm. This actually kind of feels good. I right. think I think it was Chris though. Chizarek put up a couple of Instagram posts, like you know, just a picture of his set, and he'll he'll put hashtag make ride symbols high and tilted again, <laughs> or high and angled again, or something. Really? <laughs> yes, I agree, man. Yeah, yeah. And actually, that's a wave that's that's happening right now. Yeah, a lot of drummers are actually going back high. Mm-hmm. It's weird how symbols like that they're just constantly going up and down. Yeah. If you look at the decades, like. It's you know it's it's low and flat and then high and angled and then low and flat they're just constantly you know yeah toggling between those two yeah it was like the sixties they were low and flat yeah and even in, earlier than that like you look at Buddy Rich's oh yeah of course you know the big band era of it course. was like parallel to the floor yeah um but uh, yeah the seventies and eighties hit and it was all right yep I think that's because of the dominant genre of the age kind of kind of. You know, the big band era was the big band era, mm-hmm. and and all the, all the decade that followed the big band era, you know, was just a kind of a flow from that, mm-hmm. where your symbols were set like that. Uh, but when you know, rock and funk, and you know, all these stadiums and all these flashy setups kind of came about, and technology changed. You had boom stands and right. racks and yeah, all that yeah. stuff coming along in the seventies, and you you could make these flashy setups. I think the the dominant genre kind of, I guess it kind of dictates, 
you know, what's cool. Yeah. What's a cool setup for Totally, drummers. totally. And for some drummers, myself included, like, the aesthetic is a big part of it. Yeah, man. Like, I, I think it's... Most most of the drummers that are hot today that are, that are you know, they have a, they have a specific setup that is them. Yeah. You know, they, yeah. they have something different about their setup that's like, yeah, that's... And I just want my drum set to have a visual flow. Yeah. You know, I want the positioning of everything... Especially the symbols to to just I don't want anything sticking out. I want it to like create a shape, and I don't know. That's interesting. I don't know why that is. I mean, it's it's pure vanity. It's pure aesthetic. I know, I, and I'm <laughs> the same way. My thing that, that that's that's interesting that you say that. But my my thing is I like uh, symmetry. Yes, me too. I like for my time. I like everything to be spaced because I think it's because I grew up looking at drum magazines. Yeah, yeah. Like constantly. Mm-hmm. So I, I I like my kit to look like the magazine. Yep. You know, in terms of just the the way the toms sit and just so perfectly spaced and the symbols just being like just so perfectly positioned. Right. To where it was just like picture perfect. Right. If you're If you're sitting outside the drum set, now that doesn't always work. For your body, of course, playing it right. So I've had to kind of become more flexible with okay, this this tom looks good right here, but it feels better <laughs> right. if I tilt it a little. So bit. you 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 do it halfway. Yeah, like you, you, <laughs> you compromise. You just kind of wean yourself off of right. The, yeah, right. I've had so many moments where I was like, if I was being honest with myself and I didn't give a shit how this set looked, this symbol would be right there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I give a shit how it looks, so I'm just gonna put it a little higher. Yeah. So it just creates a nice visual gesture. Yeah. And and it won't. <laughs> I, I don't know I, what that it's, is. Man. It's the happy medium we yeah. gotta find yeah. between looking good and feeling good. When yeah. We play. But we all know which one's more important. Yeah, we do. <laughs> looking good. Yeah, okay, of I'm course. Kidding, kidding. Uh, all right, man. I think we're I think we're good. And yeah, I think, man. You ready to go, Isaiah? You you over this? Yeah. He's <laughs> he's ready for lunch. You ready to eat? Man, that makes three of us. Yeah, man. Lunchtime, dude. Yeah, thanks man. for coming over, man. Thanks yeah, man, for talking. Thanks for having me, brother. Appreciate you, man. Great. It was fun. Thanks again to Larry for that talk, and thanks especially to his son, Isaiah, for being one of the most chill toddlers I've encountered in a while, at least for that hour. Check out Larry's new record, Our Thing, wherever you get music, and look for his live stream, Jazz for Lunch, on social media. Once again, go to patreon.com slash working drummer if you want to help support Working Drummer Podcast. You can get in touch with us at workingdrummer.net or on Facebook and Instagram. Share pics and videos of your gigs on Instagram using the hashtag WorkingDrummer, and we'll be featuring those in our stories. Also, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or YouTube, and leave us a rating and review on those platforms. You definitely want to check us out next week because Matt Krause will be bringing you his interview with the great Todd Zuckerman. We're super stoked about that. Hope you'll check it out. Until then, as always, thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.